Hershey's chocolate, Hershey's chocolate, it's the Hershey's chocolate world. Wherever you go, no matter how far, you're always near a Hershey bar. Hershey's chocolate, Hershey's chocolate, it's a Hershey's chocolate world. If you're the traveling kind, wherever you roam, it's good to They broke run. into the plant and they battled with the unionists inside. Loyalists came equipped with bull whips, pitchforks, pipes, pick handles, and they formed a line too deep and they made the strikers run through a gauntlet. They singled out Italians for special kids and even, quote, dark-complected children were beaten in this gauntlet. Today's show features excerpts from a talk by Dr. Carol Quirk, professor of history at SUNY Old Westbury, entitled Bitter Kisses for Labor, Mass Consumer Capitalism, and the Hershey Chocolate Sit-Down Strike of 1937. Quirk tracks the use of photography to present unions and strikes as violent and un-American, and describes how Hershey management fought off the attempt at unionization. We'll also have an update on recent organizing. And... On Labor History in 2. The year was 2000. That was the beginning of a two-day rally in Washington, D.C. to protest the gathering of world leaders for the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, or what is known as the A16 Summit. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Today I'm going to go into depth about a strike that transpired at the Hershey Chocolate Company in 1937. And it's a strike that most folks don't know about and there's been little written about it. And I am going to... You may never eat a chocolate kiss again after my talks. When I started writing about it, there was one uh, piece of literature written on it maybe 20 years before. Um, and the really, labor historians don't talk about it at all. Only 2,000 uh, workers came out on strike, and it ultimately was a failed strike for the CIO. And so I think labor historians were just uh, disinterested in this strike. But I think this strike is really important. And I think it's important because we can see the ways in which photographs begin to enter into battles over labor's rights uh, and labor's responsibilities as work as um, management might call it. Uh, battles over labor's place in American society took place not just in corporate boardrooms, at factory gates, or in DC congressional corridors, but also in the pages of an increasingly visual mass media. So at the Hershey chocolate strike uh, in April of 37, Hershey managers adapted traditional union busting techniques to a mass consumer economy. Hershey and others took advantage of transformations in 20th century news media, including its nationalization, its standardization, and its increasing reliance on photography. And they did that to defeat the CIO's United Chocolate Workers. More significantly, in conjunction with the National Association of Manufacturers, they tarred the CIO to a national public. News photographs of the strike was crucial in making the sit-down strike tactic seem a threat to America and its values. Sit-downs begin, first one's like in 34, in 36 GM comes out uh, at the end of 1936 and they really kind of snowball. And so half a million people go out on strike in a very short period of time and the number of strikes 
in this era of the sit-down is more, sort of numerically, than there ever had been before. Uh, and so Hershey is just one of those strikes. Um, but it's, at least in Life magazine, which I'm going to talk about later, it's in this time period, April, May, where you start to see the success of uh, corporations in making the sit-down just seem something very un-American. Uh, by the 1930s, the Hershey chocolate had long established its market preeminence as the American chocolate bar. For decades, the company touted its corporate good citizenship and its self-styled Americanism. Hershey loved to say, and this is Milton Hershey, the man, the founder, uh, that he never advertised. But Hershey souvenir booklets, recipes, promo pieces, postcards, magazine interviews, and newspaper articles trilled with the Hershey story. How a simple man, Milton Snavely Hershey, uh, and there's stories about him, and I gotta read this to you because it's, uh, it's too funny. It's ridiculous, but it gives you some sense of this narrative of, his, her, of Hershey. This was the title of an article in 1924 in Liberty Magazine. The story of a barefoot boy and two silver shillings and how they grew into a wise chocolate king and a million billion trillion dollars of a, and of an almost fairy-like domain in Pennsylvania where this emperor of industry is letting poor orphan boys spend, it, spend a dazzling fortune. That was the title of the article. Uh, as you can tell, it's, it's insane, right? <laughs> uh, he's this kind of magician, right? Uh, the storyline typically is that Hershey remakes himself, makes a million dollar corporation, and a town in philanthropy, philanthropies from the simple cloth of American values. I think the Hershey kiss began in like 1908 or 1910. He was trying to figure out a way. The company starts in 1901, that I do remember. And Milton Hershey was trying to figure out a way to trademark his goods. And so the kiss was a way to sort of set aside his um, chocolate from other kinds of chocolate. And he was a marketing genius. He was very, very, very uh, smart, savvy businessman in lots of ways that I'm not going to go into today, but that's one of the ways. So, you know, he says he never advertises, but indeed, Americans know Hershey chocolate, and it really is sort of our chocolate bar. Milton Hershey liked to say himself that he ate a pound of chocolate today and a day, and that's why he was so incredibly healthy. Uh, <laughs> Hershey returned to where he was born. He actually had a lot of trouble growing up. They were somewhat poor growing up. He had multiple companies that went bust. And then finally he made it good with caramels in like the 1890s, sells that, begins making chocolate. When he begins making chocolate, he returns to where he was born, uh, near Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to take advantage of the cheap milk prices. And he builds an industrial mecca in the heart of rural Pennsylvania. He wanted to reconnect modern factory workers to the land and to its inhabitants to nurture the backbone that he thought American workers lacked. So he creates a model town for his workers. He creates leisure and educational activities that are aimed at uplift. Uh, and it's very paternalistic and sort of backwards looking. But simultaneously, he's bringing modernity into the countryside in the form of mass production and consumption. He organizes dozens of family-oriented diversions. There's the Hershey Amusement Park, uh, America's largest private zoo, a rose garden, a country club, a hotel, even an Indian museum. And in these, he's really selling Hershey as a rural place to go visit and relax uh, to for visitors. 
The amusements were initially organized for workers, uh, but he ended up creating a separate company that he called Hershey Enterprises that catered to outside tourists, and he made additional profits off of Hershey Enterprises. And so he takes control of that. He says workers are too lazy to understand his cooperative ventures. In 1909, Hershey founded the Hershey Industrial School that he endows with his entire uh, corporation, his chocolate company, and the estates. So that's where he gets the, the name of the philanthropist. And ostensibly, he does this anonymously, but it appears in story after story after story from the 19-teens on. His ideals embodied in his own rise, his company, town, and philanthropies combined old-fashioned human self-sufficiency and uprightness with an algeresque urban business know-how. In Hershey's world, work exists to build virtue. Class divisions do not intrude. Indeed, the corporation was often presented as a philanthropy, not a profit-making enterprise, as he had given the corporation to the industrial school and because of his paternalism towards workers. So. There couldn't be a better corporation than Hershey to try to use against striking workers. And we'll see that process um, as we move forward. Hershey workers didn't see things in the way in which the sort of story was produced for national consumption. They harbored traditional grievances. Many of them loved Hershey. They really thought he was a very good man. He was proud. He was prickly. But they sensed that he cared for them. And so they often would blame the managers instead of blaming uh, Milton Hershey for its labor practices. Nonetheless, they were very ill-paid. A supervisor said uh, about Hershey's wages that, quote, Hershey was a low-pay place, notoriously so. Workers labored 10 and 12 hours a day, six, often seven days a week. Hershey factory employees thought work conditions no better than sh uh, sweatshops were elsewhere. They were particularly angered that firemen could, uh, foremen could fire them at will, uh, as is the case uh, in, in many industries. And as in many industrial towns, the corporation fed ethnic divisions by segregating Italian workers into the lowest paid, dirtiest jobs and also into the inferior part of town when they let them in at all. Hershey's workers' anger also stemmed from the company's vaunted paternalism. Workers who lived outside the model community's borders were fired first when slack season came, giving the company a permanent surplus labor force. So you, we'll see some of the images of the town and how beautiful it is for workers, but there weren't enough homes for workers. And so workers lived throughout the countryside, and they also lived in smaller nearby towns. Uh, and they would be fired first whenever slack season would come, typically after Christmas, Easter, etc. Uh, workers didn't make enough money to go to Hershey Park. <laughs> they were angered that there were fancy concerts and dances, et cetera, that they could hear, but they actually couldn't go visit because they weren't uh, paid enough to go. Um, there was occupational segregation. Hershey Estates workers, the folks who ran the rides, who ran the town operations, the utilities, the abattoir, um, the water, etc., cetera, uh, tended to be white and tended to be American-born, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, they sat on top of a social pecking order, all-American, higher-paid workforce. Uh, and despite Hershey's corporate welfareism, Hershey allowed no or very little autonomy on workers' part. Uh, the company made all decisions municipally, so workers couldn't vote in this town. 
He fired workers if they tried to make some extra money. So people who tried to sell sandwiches on the side or maybe paint houses so that they could make money would get not only thrown out of their jobs, but get thrown out of the town. And it would be true not just for the individual worker, but it would be true for the entire family. The company maintained tight control at the work site, within the community, even deep within the heart of domestic workers' relationships. Uh, married couples, the moment a couple got married, the wife would have to leave the plant because Milton Hershey thought it was a bad idea for women to work. So those fissures in the Hershey myth fed workers' interest in a union, and they turned to the CIO. 1,800 of the 2,100 workers at, at the Chocolate Paradise joined the CIO by March of 1937. It's in the midst of the uh, sit-down fever. Uh, they're hearing about sit-downs elsewhere, and they want to do something about their wages. When slack season comes, uh, they make demands to get raises, and the company instead fires people, including a lot of the union organizers. Uh, as a result of that, the United Chocolate Workers uh, struck. The strike atmosphere was very low-key. It wasn't as uh, high-pressured as it had been, you know, let's say, uh, at the sit-down at the GM plant um, in Michigan. Uh, people don't have an experience. Most of them didn't have any experience of union organizing prior to this point, and they were not particularly open, the workers, to hearing the experience of, of organizers who were being sent from the CIO. They just really wanted to strike and they thought that they would succeed. Uh, they hung out in the plant, they tossed chocolate out to people down below, uh, they even let managers into the plant. So they didn't really secure the premises at all. Uh, they were much more loose about it than, than is typical. Managers, however, girded for battle. Uh, they stirred up resentments among workers and between workers and the outside community in line with something that's called the Mohawk Valley Plan. And this is a plan uh, developed by a man named James Remington of the Remington Rand Corporation. He had a strike in his plant, uh, and he figured out what he called a, quote, formula that he promulgated to other National Association of Manufacturer members uh, on how to make union uh, members look bad and how to therefore win the struggle. So the struggle was being fought both physically, because union struggles have often been fought physically and certainly were before the 1930s, but were also increasingly uh, fought via uh, publicity or public relations. And that's what the point of the Mohawk Valley Plan is. So in this plan, companies instigate independent groups of loyal employees. And that's what you'll hear a lot in the, in the news in the 1930s, the loyal employees who are standing by their bosses who just want to work, okay? Uh, the company uh, also produces groups of ad hoc citizens groups who support the loyal workers and who insist on property right protections. Uh, you throw in a little violence, usually you get the loyal workers to beat up the other workers, or it doesn't matter who beats up who, all you need is a little violence, right? Uh, as it confuses the situation, and it confuses workers who are on the fence. Um, and then once there's violence, you can brand the workers as a threat to America and its values. Now, what's important about this plan, this plan has been discussed before, there's nothing new about what I'm writing here, uh, 
Irving Bernstein writes about it in his turbulent years, and Walter Gallinson in his book on the CIO writes about it. But no one has talked about the ways in which photos were used in it. And so what my work is able to do, particularly with the uh, Hershey strike, is to show that they were also attentive to the new power of photography in the news. Um, yeah. So Hershey managers went to workers' homes, personally encouraging American-born estate workers and farmers to rally for the company. The chocolate company stoked tensions. They refused to buy milk from farmers who came out in support of Hershey. So then the farmers would get mad at the workers. Hershey blamed, uh, in the news, he blamed outsiders for the strike. And he would use that word outsiders a lot, fanning the anti-Italian animus. Strike starts on April 2nd. Uh, thousands of farmers and loyal employees, also probably paid goons, and you should think muscle <laughs> at this point, turned out to a mass meeting in the Hershey Sports Arena. They're led by flag and rifle carrying members of the American Legion. Hershey later made a, a very big donation to the American Legion, and he typically did not make donations to local community groups. They broke into the plant, and they battled with the unionists inside. Loyalists came equipped with bullwhips, pitchforks, pipes, pick handles, and they formed a line too deep, and they made the strikers run through a gauntlet. They singled out Italians for special kids, and even, quote, dark-complected children were beaten in this gauntlet. They claimed the Italians were members of the Black Hand, which was the name for the mafia. They're doing whatever they can to tar the union. Now, what's more interesting to me, because You've got this strike, and it's no surprise that the National Association of Manufacturers is fighting labor. It has fought labor since its inception uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. But they're very cagey, so they've got this article that appears in their own publication. It appears in town, it gets printed up, and people can see it in town. But what's interesting is that the story that they narrate about the strike in effect, is echoed in national publications that use black and white photographs, the power and the veracity of news photographs, to suggest exactly the same argument uh, to a much broader audience. Um, so the national press pounced on the events that took place at Hershey. They told the story of an idiosyncratic boss and a well-loved consumer product, Farmers' righteous indignation at workers' disregard to them and their corporate sponsor. The tale was as standardized as Hershey's five-cent chocolate bar, and it was largely written by the corporation's own in-house publicity staff. Photographs of the idealized town, many of them which were provided by the corporation, and of striker violence helped drive home a common point. Text and image asked if the CIO could shatter the harmony of an ideal industrial town, one that had no class divisions at all, because that was the story at Hershey, that workers were taken care of, they loved their boss, they were just so, this was a peaceful place. Look what the CIO brings to it. Uh, so we'll look at, at Life magazine. So the story tells us how Milton Hershey, noted philanthropist, built a factory in the middle of a cornfield and built his workers a model town with not one, but four golf courses. 
right? So you have this sense that the workers are just playing golf all the time. Life claimed that 600 people sat down inside, a minority. It's very important to say that the workers on strike are always a minority. They don't represent what the actual worker feels. But uh, more than twice that got angrier and angrier on the outside because they were loyal to Mr. Hershey. When a horde of farmers rattles into town in their flivers and joins forces with the loyalists, according to life, the strikers are doomed. Life ends with another common detail. It shared with readers the company founder's grief. And this is a quote, Mr. Hershey on the steps of his office, now 79, with tears rolling down his cheeks. Uh, and then they give you a, a, an image of the lacrimose, a sort of cameo shot of the lacrimose uh, Hershey on the side. Life, uh, limited discussion of the company is a participant to the labor strife. So the company doesn't appear, and neither do the police. It's just the farmers and the loyal workers versus the striking workers. Uh, in place of the corporation are these loyalists who embody small town values and who fight workers who are defined by their dependency, their ingratitude, and the violence that they bring to town. Now photos help advance the storyline. Life's first page illustrated Hershey's ordered ideal through publicity photographs previously featured in Hershey recipe books and brochures to delineate the town attributes. The first shot is an aerial view of Hershey town. This is called you know, bird's eye view or a god's eye view. That they appear equivalent. What this does is it erases the factory as a site of labor. Work is never shown in these stories. Now, ostensibly, viewers get a more intimate view through two close-up shots. One of these is inside Hershey Park, and then the other is uh, on a street, uh, pretty little houses on spotless streets. These are supposed to be the workers' houses. They're actually the managers' houses that they're showing you. So we really don't know why these workers are striking, but we do know what happens when workers strike, uh, violence. Like life intimated strikers' menace through its first photograph, it shows strikers up on top of the roof, um, you know, they're strung out along the top, they've got their arms up, you can see the clubs that are being brandished, uh, and you've got this kind of modern uh, vantage point that makes it come a little bit more alive. The factory's uh, blocking modernity provides a jolt in contrast to the quaint homes and faux windmills of Hershey, and the angle and the cropping of the photograph conveys a compositional energy that adds to the human drama. In the next two shots, you see the loyal workers and the farmers who are parading past the plant and who are rushing into the factory. Both of these shots are taken in an angle. They cut right into the action that's taking place. And so I believe that uh, they look like movie stills. They emphasize motion, but also disjointedness. They are orchestrated action shots that are moving towards a specific end. The final uh, climax comes in the next shot, a potent symbol of the violence in a war narrative. Local CIO leader John Loy, who had just been forced out of the plant, is seen running the gauntlet. He's centered in the frame. He's propelled out to the foreground of the photo frame. He's coming at us. A second man whose ar upraised arms suggest self-protection or supplication joins him. The two are surrounded by the arms and bodies of loyal workers who push the men forward and the arms of others who reach out to pummel them. This maelstrom of arms and hands heightens the sense of violence that's attached to the strike. Then you have the final image uh, of grinning, victorious, loyal workers who hold high picket signs with slogans, Don't, do not bite the hand that feeds you, you can't eat the CIO, reminding readers of workers' debt to their employers. 
and cutting out the loyalists from their context and placing them against the white background of life's pages. The editors delivered a moral for readers outside the confines of time and space. Life embellished their tale with another visual gesture, and I discussed this already, the cameo shot of Hershey, who's watching his utopia be shattered. The modern-day capitalist philanthropist confronts the disordered chaos made by workers from the stable site of his creations. He judges the violence before him, much as the viewers of magazines might have after reading the article. Um, so in conclusion in this strike, in the immediate aftermath of the strike, a company-sponsored union of loyal workers defeated the CIO in an election, and they ultimately ended up being part of the AFL. And they ultimately actually ended up being not so weak a union, or at least they got significant um, rewards for the corporation unexpectedly. However, the CIO activists faced bitter defeat. They were fired by the hundreds. The implications of the loss were greater than this particular strike, though, at Hershey. Len DeCoe, who was the publicity director of the CIO, argued that in the spring of 1937, when this took place, the mass media was used, quote, like a faucet to turn public opinion on or off. I believe the strike at Hershey figured large in, the, uh, in this surging torrent of press and images against the CIO. This story in life was one of 300 stories about Hershey that appeared in the press nationwide. So it got a ton of coverage um, in, when you think about like how small it was. Um, and I think it got that coverage because two reasons. One, because the media was primed to want to produce this story because it had been producing stories about Hershey for three decades but also because the National Association of Manufacturers was so darn smart in thinking about how to position this story and get it out into, uh, out into the media sphere. The message was crystallized by George Gallup, who threatened riots like those at Hershey, quote, duplicated in many parts of the US, uh, end quote, and the National Association of Manufacturers, who drew on, on Hershey to predict a, quote, divided states of America. Millions of Americans read a story largely produced by the Hershey Corporation that drew on the myth of a corporate benefactor and the workers' paradise that was long cultivated by the company and depicted in company photographs. The myth was well ensconced in the nation's consciousness in part because mass media outlets had been putting it there for 30 plus years. And because that media increasingly used photography, Americans could see their ideals and their aspirations menaced by a minority of outside CIO agitators and their illegitimate demands. You know, basically what I'm arguing is that photographs both bring workers into the mainstream in very exciting ways that they had not prior to this point. That if workers were often seen as the outsider, when you hit the 1930s and 1940s, both unions and even magazines like Life begin to imagine workers as part of the mainstream, and that that's important for labor's prospects. But that even as that happens, photographs also limit labor's options. They make strikes look anarchic, something labor shouldn't do. They focus on um, the union leadership and sort of deny rank and file activism. And they divide workers by race and by gender in ways that have consequences, I believe, for workers. Um, and the, the final thing I say is just that what they show as like what unions should be for, the goals of unionization, are very, very limited. And instead of an expansive vision, you get this very limited vision. Dr. Carol Quirk, professor of history at SUNY Old Westbury, 
with excerpts from her 2014 talk, Bitter Kisses for Labor, Mass Consumer Capitalism, and the Hershey's Chocolate Sit-Down Strike, 1937. Here's an update on union organizing at Hershey today. It's known as the Hershey Prison. I've worked 28 days straight consecutively without a day off at Hershey. I've worked 33 days straight. 72 days consecutively. I was exhausted, both physically and mentally. Did I try to get days off? Yes. I was denied that weekend unless I got my own coverage. I do not. I was led to believe that there was a five-day-a-week work shift. Once getting there, that was completely false. Production workers feel that Hershey's does not want to replace the equipment due to cost, cuts into their their bonuses. Um, With the machinery not being maintained properly and being outdated, it's constantly breaking down, which means that you're never going to get a day off because you got to have those days to make up for the downtime. If you get sick, you will get a point for that time lost or that time missed. At three and a half points, the company deems that you have some sort of um, emotional or mental issues and they send you to counseling um, for missing three and a half days of work out of an entire year. A certain supervisor told me that I could not discuss the union on the company floor. That's illegal. At Hershey's, there's a fear of retaliation. It's real, and we're seeing it. There is no doubt in my mind that I have been terminated because of my union activities, because they know that I support this union 100%. It was a pleasure working there, except for the never-ending overtime, um, the not being able to get sick without penalty, and the constant fear of being written up or fired over the smallest infraction. this union. They're spewing nothing but half-truths, they're lying through omission, they're fear-mongering, they're gaslighting, and they're just running scared in my opinion. A message to the awesome fellow co-workers there is, hang tough, we're going to make a difference. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 2000. That was the beginning of a two-day rally in Washington, D.C. to protest the gathering of world leaders for the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, or what is known as the A16 Summit. The event was a continuation of the massive protests that disrupted the World Trade Organization's meeting the year before in Seattle, Washington. The common thread through these protests was a concern over how globalization of world markets hurts working people and the environment. Protesters included a wide range of people, including peace activists, environmental activists, anarchists, and union members. Two days before the D.C. protest, organizers held an international forum on globalization at the Foundry Methodist Church. 2,000 people attended this teach-in to hear from activists around the globe. It's estimated that 50,000 people attended the D.C. rallies. 
One big theme for the rallies was bringing attention to the negative consequences that can occur when developing countries receive economic bailouts. The strings attached to these painful bailouts often usher in destructive privatization schemes and painful austerity measures that disproportionately fall on the backs of working people. The protesters in the U.S. Capitol were met by a large police security presence. The D.C. police were determined that the protesters would not interrupt the meetings like they had done in Seattle. More than 1,000 people were arrested. These protests from Seattle to Washington, D.C. demonstrate a growing recognition of the devastating impact globalization has on the lives of regular people. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. Hershey's Chocolate, Hershey's Chocolate, it's the Hershey's Chocolate World. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Thanks this week to Michigan State University professor John P. Beck. Carol Quirk's talk was part of the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives Brown Bag series, sponsored by the MSU School for Human Resources and Labor Relations, the MSU Museum, and the MSU School of Journalism as part of the university's Project 6050 held at the MSU Museum on September 9, 2014. Special thanks to More Perfect Union for the report on the Hershey's Prison. We've got a link to the complete video in the show notes. Our music today was Hershey's Chocolate World, the Great American Chocolate Bar Song. Labor History Today is produced by the Cal Manovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Posak, and Alan Weirdat. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.